is Monica Perez, joined today by our returning guest, Jeremy Kuzmaroff, the managing editor of Covert Action Magazine and author of numerous books, including The Russians Are Coming Again, The First Cold War as Tragedy, The Second as Farce. I think I have that title memorized. Well, Jeremy and I have totally different ideological bents. He thinks government's legit, and I think it's at this point totally hopeless. But we have a lot of common ground, so let's discover it. Thank you so much, Jeremy, for joining us once again. Thanks so much for having me. Since last time we spoke, there have been many articles that you wrote for Covert Action Magazine, and I know you're also working on an expose of, if that's the right word for it, of Bill Clinton, and I wondered how that's going. Good. Yeah, th this uh, that book should be published. Uh, I believe it'll be released on December first. And I, yeah, I worked on it for many years. Uh, it's called Warmonger: How the, uh, Bill Clinton Shaped the Foreign Policy Trajectory from Bush to Biden. And yeah, it looks at how a lot of the uh, uh, disastrous policies really emanated with with Clinton, like the NATO expansion, you know, the new Cold War. That's obviously a key chapter. Uh, and really, Clinton set that in motion. And I think the tragedy was that you had, you know, you had figured like Robert McNamara, who was no dub. I mean, this is the architect of the Vietnam War. He said the end of the Cold War presents an opportunity for a new peace dividend. And, you know, we can finally invest our money. Now the Cold War is over. We can invest our tax dollar, you know, in re rebuilding America and improving uh, condi living conditions in America. But unfortunately, uh, Clinton followed a different path, and he really pioneered, you know, the humanitarian intervention with Cold War pretext uh, gone. You know, Clinton used the rationale, oh, we have to stop genocide, and you know, use these fake humanitarian motives to build the support for U.S. military intervention and for, uh, you know, escalating the U.S. military budget when the Cold War was over. And, you know, usually they were fake genocide, like in the Balkan, it was a very complex conflict. And um, actually, the the U.S. was siding with Croatia and um, Muslims in Bosnia-Herzegovina, who committed a lot of the atrocities in the war, the worst worst ethnic cleansing. And, I mean, they were uh, Islamic uh, fundamentalists, and the Croats were uh, very brutal toward the Serbs. So... You know, they claim we're stopping genocide, but they're supporting really the most brutal forces. And the Serbs have been trying to keep the Yugoslav Federation together. So, uh, and that and other cases, yeah, the rhetoric is totally hollow and misleading, but they seem to get, you know, liberals on board with these military interventions. And that what we see, you know, more recently, like in the Biden-Obama years, a lot of liberals supported wars in Libya or Syria on supposed humanitarian ground and, and the same kind of rhetoric was you, you know, we have to go in to stop genocide and stop these massacres, but really they're on the side of uh, horrible forces who are committing a lot of the massacres and there's underlying agenda. You know. I mean, that's true right now with the conflicts we're engaged in right now. Yeah. Like Ukraine. I mean, so many liberal support, it's only Republican congressmen that, we're saying we're not going to endlessly fund this war that's going nowhere. And all these liberal Democrats have been waving their Ukraine flags. I think that was a cult of personality thing. Like they set it up so that Trump was the bad guy by not funding Ukraine. It just absolutely was like a really hollow dialectic, like of no ideological yeah. foundation. But it's just like Democrats are against Trump. So yeah, let's make so Trump against Ukraine funding. 
Yeah, even though Trump really was funding it pretty significantly. And then I don't know what they're saying now that they caught, you know, their dear leader Zelensky was uh, cheering on a Nazi in, in the Canadian parliament. Uh, I don't know what they have to say about that. That was very bizarre. That was a strange episode for sure. Well, the Clinton stuff, I used to call it the Bush-Clinton continuum because that's how I saw it even back in the day. And I, I think it's interesting that's where the human rights industry as a front for the military-industrial complex emerged. I'm very interested in reading your book for that reason. And I have to say, this is one of our ideological divides. I have been nodding my head and being like, okay, yes, I would much rather spend money on the U.S. than on foreign entanglements, which are inherently immoral anyway. We're using the money to kill people. I would probably rather them use money for daycare here. However, I must assert that I am a hardcore libertarian, and I would much, much, much rather that our government, at least the federal government, shrunk a lot and that just the tax rates were lower, and I think more good would come out of that. I understand that's not, not your position and a lot of other people. Well, I, I would agree that they shouldn't overspend. I mean, the the money has to be spent efficiently on the program people need. So, yeah, I agree with you. I, you know, the taxes don't have to necessarily be uh, that high. I mean, they were paying doctors. I just saw a schedule which looked totally official to me that they were giving doctors or vaccine centers or whatever. The government was giving a doctor $250 for every vaccinated person. So they were taking, you know, say, that, I don't know how much it costs, like how much Pfizer gets, but say they got $100 a shot. So your insurance pays Pfizer $100 to get you vaccinated. And the U.S. government pays the doctor $250. So, I mean, that is cronyism of the highest order, but that's the kind of thing that's actually damaging. It's as bad, you know, it's, it's, it is not a good, it's a public bad. <laughs> so well, I agree with that. You. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would be emphasizing, you know, yeah, if the government actually enacted programs that, I mean, certain services they provide are, are necessary, but I agree with you. There's so much corruption and cronyism that the money they're spending really often doesn't benefit people. And I, I can see why people complain about their taxes, not only the foreign wars, but. Yeah, they're bad. I'd rather burn it. <laughs> I'd rather burn it. So but the most recent article you wrote was called uh, The Washington Post Lifts the Veil on the CIA's Shadow War Against Russia, waged since 2014. So I read your article on this. I read the Washington Post article on it. The Washington Post article tells a lot of stuff, but it couches it in kind of apologetic terms. Can you give us just a, an outline of what it is that they are revealing in this article and what why would they would write an article like that and what you think is really going on? Okay. <laughs> yeah, and this is a very revealing article. I mean, a lot of it was known, I think, before. There were some Ukrainian defectors who said that the CIA... Was firstly, yeah, we know that these Ukrainian special force units and commandos have been carrying out a shadow war against Russia and carrying out terrorist activity like the car bombing uh, that killed this uh, young journalist, Daria Dugina, who was the daughter of, um, of Vladimir Dugin. Who Alexander a, Dugin? Alexander, sorry, Dugin. Who's a yeah, problem that was just Russia. murder. What? That's just yeah. murder, and that's why they deny it because it's murder. Yeah. And now, well, it's eventually, undeniable. it came out that the suspect was linked with Ukraine, and I think they—I'm pretty sure—they actually admitted to it. And they, you know, there have been articles like the New York Times had an article earlier this year that profiled some of these commando units, and they kind of brag that they were placing bombs in police cars and police stations. 
and uh, sneaking into Russian territory. I mean, and that is so, not legal. You know what I mean? No. Like, like they act like it's some kind of legitimate thing that Washington Post article couched it in terms, well, we have to fight fire with fire and Russia's the real terrorist and they they invaded Ukraine in 2014. I mean, I assume they're talking about Crimea, which had a nearly unanimous referendum to move from post-coup Ukraine to join the Russian Federation where they were permitted to speak their native language. I mean, it's just preposterous to think that Russia was the aggressor in 2014 and they're acting like they were so aggressive that it justifies murdering innocent women and children or putting people in danger. Yeah, and they're targeting civilian officials. And this is the same as the Phoenix program in Vietnam where they're targeting mayors of towns uh, civilian officials in government who and that is not allowed like there is collaborators yeah. yeah this is just a even in a war program. even in a war i don't think you're allowed to do that i think that's no, against the geneva convention yeah i mean they shot that overt... admiral um or former admiral when he was out for a run jogging, yeah yep, and that and the blogger and i know other people they've murdered i forget the guy's name but a real real hero sitting in a cafe not just that blogger there was another one too um, well, a lot of the officials in the yeah. uh, Donetsk uh, People's yes. Republic government were murdered through bombings, the bombing of cap, uh, cafes. And um, yeah, this is just outright terrorism and murder, which they should be prosecuted. And, you know, it's clear from the Post article that the CIA is very centrally involved in this, that they've been, you know, uh, financing these forces, training them. Um, and, you know, the post, the one thing, yeah, I guess it's, in a way, it's kind of damage control because they're trying to say, oh, well, the CIA didn't plan those terrorist acts, <laughs> but they do acknowledge they're financing these forces, training them, working very closely with them. So, And using uh, them to gather we, information that they are hoovering up. Exactly. They're helping the intelligence uh, to identify these individuals and identify, you know, uh, their schedules and but also the CIA is using their Ukrainian operatives to gather intelligence. So obviously, I mean, you could call it an arm of the CIA. You can say whatever you want about them, them shrugging their shoulders. Or one of the quotes was, we want nothing to do with that. <laughs> like, you know, yeah. like, but if they're, well, they set it all up, and, right. I mean, probably they're calling the shots and, you know, probably that's just, you know, plausible deniability. I mean, they get someone to do the final act and they say, you know, we didn't uh, send them to do that, but yeah, they gave them all the information that, uh, I mean, probably they gave the orders too. They're just covering that up. And if the, is that the same um, organizations at the GUR or something where, are they the ones who were also assassinating or uh, persecuting people inside Western Ukraine that were of opposition parties. I mean, one of the things we've talked about in the past is Zelensky basically outlawing political competition internally. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, they've set up a totalitarian apparatus since the Maidan coup of 2014, and Zelensky you know, used the wartime measures to ban 12 opposition parties, and a lot of their leaders yeah, have been harassed, you know, forced into exile. Many of them have been kidnapped and jailed. And I think those jails are, you know, known for torture and brutal conditions. So uh, there's huge numbers of political prisoners. And yeah, the SBU and, and GRU, I think GRU, GUR is the military wing. So I think they're more involved in East Ukraine and Russia. 
and SBU would be more involved in Western Ukraine. Uh, and yeah, I know all the left-wing parties have been banned, um, including the Socialist and Communist Party. And yeah, you can contrast that with Russia. I mean, the Communist Party is the leading opposition party in Russia, and the media fixates with supposedly how unfree Russia is. And there certainly are authoritarian features, but their Communist Party is legal, whereas Ukraine, it's illegal, and all the communists are in jail and socialists, and any party that's considered pro-Russian has been banned, uh, and they're a huge number of political prisoners. So, And, you know, you wonder why, like, these human, as you were saying before about the human rights industry, their hypocrisy is that they're not providing reports about the huge political repression going on in Ukraine. Well, there's a few things um, also that came out of the article um, one is that this is basically laying the groundwork or it seemed to me, and you said it too, it's fashioning a new Mossad. Yeah. They're actually going into foreign countries and assassinating people on foreign soil. Yeah. I, yeah. Be, because they're doing that in Russia. And, uh, you know, it, it, it warns that they may be doing that in other countries as well. Who knows if they're going to hunt them down. Uh, somewhere else, you know, that that may be the next step. I mean, they have this Marat Barrett's uh, website, and that's the other thing, how brazen they are. You know, it could be they're, they're advertising this because they want people to fear them. So, you know, and they have this website, and it says it's a CIA website. So, and those are people on the kill. You know, it's a, it's a death list. And, you know, traditionally, like under Phoenix, what the CIA did was they set up these blacklists and they help, you know, to identify the people, and then they help ultimately track them down. Now they're openly publicizing the blacklist online, and it's a kind of they're issuing a threat, and they've carried it out. I mean, Dugina was on the blacklist, and she was assassinated. And you know, if you go on that Moretbert's website, they have the blacklist, and some people are crossed off. Oh Those my are people gosh! Who are killed, and a lot of them are journalists. You know, Russian journalists. Yeah, and why aren't there charges brought? She was an, a, a journalist. I mean that yeah. that's just not it's that's just not legal. And if there's any, I know murdering a journalist yes, uh, on foreign soil, black. And you know uh, it, there was a propaganda campaign to depict uh, uh, Alexander Dugan as a fascist writer, and that was not true. You know that might be oh, really how legitimize it that oh he's a yeah, fascist. I never looked into oh, him, not- but I tried to, and I noticed a lot of that kind of. Uh, yeah, I looked. I, I read two of his books, and I asked some uh, 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 Russians about it. And he's not. In fact, the first book I read, uh, which you can, I found on the open library. I had read one of his books, and when I was writing my book, the Russians are coming again. So when I heard him reference as a fascism. And I, as a fascist, and even there are some people I knew who were like in anti-war type circles would say, oh, he's a fascist. And I was like shaking my head because the book I had read at, by him advocated for a Central Asian Union. And it was like anti-imperialism, it was like the Central Asian countries should unify, you know, to strengthen their economies, to strengthen them against the West. And it was critical of, of U.S. foreign policy and like Western imperialism. Uh, and then another book I read, uh, by him, uh, he repudiated fascism like early, very early in the book and he developed his own hybrid, uh, philosophy, but it was just a propaganda campaign to, I think, to try and legitimate, uh, you know, assassinating him and or his daughter. 
And you're right, it should generate outrage uh, worldwide, and the culprits, uh, you know, should be identified and, and put on trial. And the government, I mean, it's an outlaw government that would uh, support overtly murdering journalists, but you don't have that outcry in the West. Uh, I think the propaganda campaign was effective. And people are not very well informed about the Ukraine conflict. No. I think they're better informed and outraged about the Israeli conflict on the Palestinians, but they don't have any empathy uh, for the people of eastern Ukraine who have suffered uh, as much as the Gazans. Um, there's no outcry about uh, for nine years they've been suffering under terrible bombardment uh, and attack. From so Ukraine. many civilians and there was died. No solidarity with them. You know, you have all these Palestine solidarity uh, groups, but you have no. And people who are on the left uh, are involved are, uh, in uh, protests and stuff against what Israel's doing or are expressing their outrage on Facebook. But I, I never saw uh, very few, except people who are living in Russia and a small number of well informed people who expressed any solidarity for the people of eastern Ukraine and the atrocities that the Ukrainians backed by the U.S. perpetrated on them for, for nine years, continuing today. And these assassinations, yeah. I feel like conflict around the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is being allowed to become more robust and out in the open, whereas, like, I, we don't have to talk about that, but it definitely smacks of all of a sudden... Uh, the Palestinian side has a voice, which previously after 9-11, they didn't, you know, like I just, there's something going on here that's a little different. And I feel like with Ukraine, it's very clear, like there will be, they're not using it for dialectic. They actually just want to win that, put it to rest and square Russia away, which I don't think they're going to do. But, um, but another thing in the article was that they, and I don't know if it's true or not, but that the Ukrainian GUR or whatever, maybe it's the other one, I think it's the GUR, actually got drones as far as Moscow, which points out why Ukraine being a part of NATO is is such a, an existential threat to Russia. And they're completely valid in worrying about that. Oh, yeah. And this is very dangerous. Yeah, they're, I mean, they, they I think at one point they even hit the Kremlin uh, with an attack and They've been very brazen in taking these attacks directly uh, into Moscow and even attacking the Kremlin, and they have these drone capabilities. And, I mean, this is particularly, you know, the, the point I made at the end is that, you know, this is as bad as a thing like the Phoenix program in Vietnam, but it's even more dangerous because this war is being taken into Russia itself, a nuclear-armed power, uh, and it's, it's threatening a world war and potential nuclear war, so it's it's really uh, very, very dangerous and, and reckless. And I don't know why Americans uh, put up with this. I mean, this is just a, a extremely reckless yes. foreign policy to extremely. antagonize the Russians in this way and take a war into their homeland yeah. as such a major power. Well, I think they were anti. There was something I read from, I think, 2019 on the Rand Corporation website about how they were uh, 
seriously considering the option of drawing Russia into a real live conflict in Ukraine, kind of like the whole Afghanistan thing, and just try to get them bogged down with that, and that they were going to start with Belarus, go in there and try to bribe the president of Belarus. And if he went for it, that would be great. And if he didn't, like demonize him and try to get him ousted. Like it was a really comprehensive uh, um suggestion or whatever plan that they that was an option it's probably still on the rand corporation website but it was 2019 and it said you know one way that we can lure russia into this conflict is to continue to press for ukraine and i don't know if it was georgia or somebody else to get into nato which which russia could not tolerate and that 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 would be the perfect way to get them in so i think that their provocation which was the actual provocation in the like fall whatever it was right before the Russian action on February 24th, I guess it was. But prior to that, a couple of months prior to that, they had they really ramped up the pro, you know, the NATO rhetoric of getting those people to join. And it seemed to me completely consistent with the plan to, you know, and it's reckless, but they're doing it. They want to do it. Yeah, they want a war. And that's I mean, war should be a last resort. You know, war is so horrible and and kills so many innocent people. And diverts our resources uh, into just violence. So I mean, it should be the last last resort. You know, if your country's under threat of attack, then you have to defend yourself right. as last resort. But to go out like these documents, as you and I've read them too, and it showed they're just provoking conflicts when there was no conflict at all, and that's just pure aggression. And and the reason is just like a geopolitical scheme to try and weaken your adversary by creating major conflict, but you're threatening in the process a world war and you can destroy your own country in the process. So we're so insulated from really understanding what that means to just have innocent. If I don't, I don't know a single innocent person who was killed on us soil for their political views. Like I don't know anyone personally, but you know, whatever thousands of 14,000 people were killed in the East, uh, Ukraine, I just, you know, it's something that we just don't understand. We we value innocent life so highly. And I don't know why we think that we're above, you know, that we deserve it and other people don't because they're poor or whatever. And I also, I think that JFK's speech at American University, which I believe is what actually was the last straw that got him killed, I think he was uh, alluding to the fact that he realized like the CIA was in Africa creating tribal conflicts where there wasn't any, creating all these opportunities for war where, and I think that's why he said, I want a, a pox for all time, not a pox Americana, but a real peace for all people for all time that he knew was possible. And we were actually generating the conflicts because that was our lifeblood, you know, whatever war is the health of the state. So it just these things just are not changing. And and yet generation after generation, people don't learn those lessons. So another, I didn't actually give you a heads up that I was going to refer to this a little bit, but another article that you wrote recently on covertactionmagazine.com was um is it magazine.com? What's the URL there? It's yeah, it's full, fully covertactionmagazine.com. So that um, you know, Biden is talking about this like massive amount of money that he wants to uh you know contribute to the Ukraine and other wars and um 
$106 billion budget request to, to Congress for Ukraine, Israel, Gaza, Taiwan, and the U.S. border, $60 billion of which would go for military assistance to Ukraine. I mean, I remember when we were horrified that $30 billion went to Ukraine and then another $30 billion went to Ukraine. Now it's just $60 billion. It's just, you know, in a package. Let's let's keep sending it. What what are they even... I mean, is that just a way to, to put... The sixty billion. I mean, the original scandal, like the Burisma, Burisma scandal, which I was looking into with Kolomoisky, who was Zelensky's boss, with Kerry, with Biden, with Hunter Biden on that thing. That I thought really ultimately was about a billion dollar IMF loan that got funneled through all these guys' uh, entities, maybe several billion through Privat Bank, which was Kolomoisky's bank. But now we're talking sixty billion. What are they? I mean. I feel like that that this has to be the biggest corruption scheme ever. I mean, I really feel like Ukraine was potentially one of the most corrupt countries, you know, that I've ever heard of. And here they are continuing to funnel money into there. Yeah, it's a huge amount of money you know, at the, the uh, bottom of the article, you know, discusses some of the, imagine if that money was used yes. constructively, uh, you know, the homeless problem could be ended, you know. Right. And, you know, last year I was at the Rage Against the War Machine rally and Jimmy Dore was one of the keynote speakers, and that was part of his comedic routine. He was like, and and he was talking about 100 billion last year, so it's another 100 billion this year, every year. Uh, and he was saying, with that money, we could cure cancer, we could uh, end homelessness, put all the homeless back on the street, and then end it again. <laughs> you know, and he's making jokes about it, but I mean, it was sad. And, and he said, I mean. Uh, at the end, I mean, yeah, it's kind of funny the way I'm framing it, but this is really sad. I mean, and that money is just going toward destruction. I mean, the Ukrainian army is not advancing. Uh, the reports I was reading, it's just like death on the Eastern Front. You know, the soldiers who are being sent to the front line, they know that seven out of ten members of their platoon is not going to make it. And they're in a living hell. And I mean, this could have ended a long time ago. You know, they had the Minsk framework that yes. I, mean, I think discussed on this show before. Yes, was a reasonable framework at least temporarily solve the problem and grant some you know autonomy to the eastern uh, Ukrainian provinces. So uh, this money is just give the Ukrainian the confidence that they don't have to negotiate, but they're sending their own soldiers to a. a a death mill and they're all dying. I mean, these, their recruit, another report said that they're having to recruit people well into their forties into the Ukrainian army because so many young people have either fled the country or are dead. Uh, so who is this benefiting? I mean, right. and this is money that could be used. I mean, they're urgent social problem in the United States. They, you know, go to any American city and there's all these homeless people. And I mean, they need some help, you know, maybe, uh, you know, some of these people have serious problem, but a good number, if you give them some shelter and some hope, you know, some training that they can get a job, uh, some investment in them, and they'll turn their life around. At least half of them probably could. So you don't even have to put it in those simple terms. We actually have all the, I'm sure, mostly hidden psychological and sociological research. I'm, I'm confident they know exactly what they're doing. They're cr creating these problems. They meaning 
the corpo governmental continuum, whatever, the CIA or Facebook, which is the CIA front, basically, like they create the, let's take an example, COVID policy. So if you want to say who are they, I would say the World Health Organization, the World Economic Forum, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, Johns Hopkins. They created this worldwide COVID policy, which absolutely predictably, because I predicted it and said a lot of other people, would result in massive mental health issues for particularly adolescents. That's what I was focused on at the time. And now they have this massive mental health crisis and they have a lot of ready-made solutions that they can build their industries around. Same thing with drugs. I mean, the drug problem, yes, you could take the Singapore approach and just kill all the drug dealers. I'm not suggesting that. But I think you can trace fentanyl from like, I think it was 2014 or 2018, there was some point where it just started. It just started. My sister died of a fentanyl, an accidental fentanyl overdose. Like it, it's in stuff that it didn't used to be in. And I feel like these problems are intentional that, that if Jimmy Dore, or your article, whatever says like you have a hundred billion dollars, this is what you could do with it. There is absolutely no doubt in my mind that our government do, and uh, the politicians in it do not want to solve these problems. And if you look at how much we spend, that I would say surplus taxation is like probably approaching $10 trillion, maybe $7, $8 trillion, where they, if you stopped putting it into Social Security or Medicare, or even public education, if you took that money and divided it um, among the lower half of the population, 150 million people, every single person would get a $35,000 tax-free check every year. And I'm not saying we should do that. I'm just trying to get people's minds around how much money we are spending in the name of fiscal or physical security that is failing. And if you just converted that into like, okay, how much should it cost for one person to be able to live? $35,000 for every man, women, and children below the 50% mark is more than enough to solve every single problem. And they're not doing it because they don't want to, in my opinion. And this is just another way of getting money out to their cronies and to create problems that will keep this machine going. I mean, that's not nothing new in what I just said, but just every once in a while, I just feel like you have to think about uh, the the reality of this situation. It's mostly corruption. We can say there's a big picture, the devil is at work or whatever, but it's just mostly, in my opinion, like a venal corruption. I would agree, yeah. And it's just uh, <laughs> Sorry for ranting. These, uh, military contractors and fat cats. And yeah, that's what uh, Robert Kennedy had a quote I read uh, where he said something to that effect, that this is just a boondoggle of uh, Ukraine he was referring to for Raytheon, you know, Boeing. Right. And then above them are these Wall Street firms like BlackRock and Vanguard uh, that uh, own them or invest in the stocks and they're the big winners and everybody else is a loser. And they want these wars to keep going on. They want to grind Russia into a quagmire so the war keeps going. And you know now they appointed Penny Pritzker to head the oh reconstruction. Oh, my gosh, yes. And he's going to bring in all these corporations are going to make them, uh, more money rebuilding you know Ukrainian cities. And the contracts will go to American uh, companies. This is another article you wrote. Biden appoints yeah. billionaire from CIA mafia-linked family to oversee exploitation of Ukraine's economy by multinational corporations. I mean, that is an old story, too. I believe Libya is probably a good example of that. Yeah, or Af Iraq, Afghanistan. Yes, yeah. yes, of course, yes. Yeah, and it's even, just a business, yeah. exactly. Even the Balkans. They deliberately want to destroy countries and then uh, give their friends the money to rebuild it. 
And who cares about all those lives who are destroyed? Like water plants and schools and hospitals were bombed in Libya. And I remember thinking, are they that stupid? And then I realized they just go in and rebuild them. And it's just crazy. Uh, Then you wrote another article, which I'd love to talk to you about right now. American political history might have turned out differently if a Louisiana congressman's plane hadn't mysteriously vanished out of thin air 51 years ago. And what really caught my eye about this article is the last person to see him alive, basically, who did not get on that plane was none other than Bill Clinton, the subject of your new, your upcoming book. So this is Hale Boggs you're talking about. Tell me the story. Well, and that's that's a fodder for conspiracy theory. I, I don't know if Clinton, I don't think in this case, Clinton really had anything to do with it. He, he was very young, but it was just a coincidence, maybe. But um, yeah, Boggs was. Uh, uh, I mean, it's yeah, possible but, that they knew they they had a profile of this guy as a sociopath. Whatever. I always think that they identify some of these created persons very young, and if they knew, you know, if they said, "All right, this is somebody who might see something," but we're pretty sure that if he does, we can get him to keep his mouth shut. You know, like I just think sometimes they put these people in the position they don't know what they're doing. They don't have any real role, but. They're the ones who know, like I think Kamala Harris, it's like she knows where the bodies are buried. Like she's just being groomed to be one of these people who is always in a position of like, we'll never tell. I don't know. Well, that's true of Clinton. Actually, by that point, he was already recruited into the CIA because he was recruited either at Georgetown or when he was a student at Oxford University and his roommate was- He was a Rhodes Tal- Scholar. Yeah, his, sorry, his yeah. great what? Although, he, well, his roommate was Strobe Talbot, uh, who was a, a Russia hand. And the two of them went on a trip to Russia to smuggle the memoirs of, of Nikita Khrushchev and, and material from Khrushchev because Khrushchev had denounced Stalin. So that was valuable for the U.S. in the Cold War to publicize Khrushchev's denunciation of Stalin. So that was their mission. And Talbot knew Russian, and he later worked for Time magazine, and he translated Khrushchev's memoirs into English. And so Clinton was with the CIA. So... And that would fit in that he may have had something, you know, had some role in the Boggs operation uh, because, yeah, the CIA very likely was behind Boggs' murder because Boggs was a member of the Warren. He was a dissenting member of the Warren Commission uh, who signed off on the Warren Commission, but he was speaking with Jim Garrison. The And that's how uh, you know Jim Garrison was the New Orleans attorney who <laughs> prosecuted Clay Shaw for his involvement in the conspiracy to murder JFK. And he was, you know, publicizing that there was a conspiracy behind Kennedy's assassination, that the CIA was very likely involved, that possibly Lyndon Johnson was involved. And Boggs had been the one feeding him a lot of information. Uh, and Boggs had, had become very critical and skeptical of the Warren Commission report and he was slated to be the next Speaker of the House. And with the Watergate scandal, he could have potentially become a president, uh, or he could have been the candidate in, in 76 instead of Jimmy Carter. Or with Watergate, if Nixon and Agnew had gone out together, the Speaker of the House becomes wow. the president. So there's even a chance he could have become pr- president in the early 70s or, or the Democratic Party nominee. And he was going to reopen the Warren Commission and the investigation into JFK's assassination. That was only about 10 years after. Right. And probably also into Robert Kennedy's assassination. So 
that would be the motive behind his assassination. And he was also starting to criticize the FBI, and he criticized Hoover for presenting misinformation to the Warren Commission. And he also spoke out in Congress how Hoover was, uh, they harassed you know, some book authors who had written some pioneering books investigating the Kennedy assassination. And those authors were harassed in different ways. And Boggs said that was un-American. And he was warning about a growing police state and totalitarianism. Uh, so there were some powerful people who wanted him gone in the FBI and the CIA. And then he took a plane uh, and uh, his plane crashed in Alaska. Uh, it was with another congressman, uh, Nick Bagich. And yeah, Bagich's son has given some public interviews and he said, you know, talk about a real life conspiracy. As he went into all the details and there was a lot of, you know, if you look into the crash, it was very suspicious. They didn't report it correctly what yes. happened and they were hiding information and then some mafia elements who had connection with the CIA later admitted that they planted a bomb so it's pretty well established that it was a murder of, of Boggs and 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 Nick Bagich there were, it's established that they plant can you elaborate on the bomb thing uh from my recollection they the, these mafia guys admitted I guess Oh right, right, yeah. Okay, right. Question of credibility, but I don't. It's if you have somebody confessing to the crime, it's obviously very significant. So yes, right. I'm I'm looking at this article on your website, and it uh, I see that there's an ad for Garrison, a magazine, which I assume is named after Jim Garrison. Yes, who, that, that's named after Jim Garrison. Yeah, who's the he only was, only person who ever prosecuted anyone in the JFK assassination? Yeah, and he's the basis for Oliver Stone's film. You know, he's the hero in Oliver Stone's film right. JFK. Right, and he's a, a compelling uh, historical figure. But yeah, Boggs was the one who tipped him off that the Warren Commission was corrupt and was supplying him with information about the CIA's role and others in the conspiracy, including Lyndon Johnson. Oh, yeah. Well, it was um, I, in this Hal Boggs article that uh, you wrote, it was extremely disturbing to me that they got credible information that two of the four people on the plane had survived. And that that was just not fully followed up on, or there's no evidence of it being followed up on. I mean, that's just that just makes me sick. Yeah, there's exactly they're all kind of odd things, and there was never a thorough investigation, or, or, or at least the publicly disclosed information that offered a clear explanation of what might have happened. And you know, when that when it's clear they're hiding information. <clears throat> you start to become really suspicious. And then later uh, there are these admissions by the, the mafia guys about planting a bomb. So Right. Just the idea that those people were starving and freezing to death out in the mountains in Alaska is just so inhumane. But the fact, you know, it's weird because I had, the name sounds familiar, but I feel like there are other famous Boggs. There's <laughs> like Wade Boggs and stuff. So Hale Boggs, I just didn't, wasn't really familiar with it. But that he was actually on the Warren Commission and then, you know, died 
mysteriously not that long after, I mean, that's major. That that's definitely needs to be on the short list of political, likely political assassinations. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I don't think many people would recognize his name today, but that, I guess, by design, they made sure that he wouldn't become um, very well known. It would be forgotten. Uh, and he was, you know... Uh, yeah, he, I mean, there's so many, if you look into the Kennedy assassination, there's so many people who died uh, mysteriously who were, uh, who, you know, were in the know about the Kennedy assassination. So he's one of them and he's, yeah, very prominent at the time. He was a very prominent political figure who was a potential future president, or at least uh, certainly would have been the Speaker of the House where he could use that platform I mean, they did uh, have the House uh, Committee on Assassination was convened in the late 70s following the Church Committee. That probably would have been convened much earlier if he was the Speaker of the House and maybe would have probed deeper into the CIA um, and maybe he would have helped to build momentum for uh, reopening the investigation uh, right. at large and criminal prosecutions extending beyond what Garrison had started with Clay Shaw. I mean, there would more be. Of a bit player. Clay Shaw was more of a bit player. Right. And there were much bigger fish to fry. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm totally, I feel like the, the theory to beat is that this guy was assassinated. That's just awful. And they had such a competent pilot and it was safe to fly. Um, there was one other article. I feel like I keep, uh, like pulling things out of your past that you may not have refreshed your memory on, but I can, I'm sure you can give us a little, I wanted to read a passage or two from the article you wrote, U.S. taxpayers are funding their own conditioning for a war that would entail national suicide. And um, I just want, you know, it opens with the National Endowment for Democracy, NED, a CIA cutout provided $5 million in grants to anti-Chinese government groups to try to destabilize China and spread propaganda to isolate it while building opposition to its government. That was in 2021. Uh, I've gotten emails from people who don't really, they think the National Endowment for Democracy is good. And one reason that people think that I think is that it was established during the Reagan administration. And a lot of people don't realize that either whether he was, you know, deep state or a lot of things happened, like just look at the debt during his time, like it's, I, I loved Reagan. I mean, I, I cried when he was shot, but I just, uh, I know that, that he did, I mean, the vaccine stuff all came from his era. So can you just um, explain what the National Endowment of Democracy is or is supposed to be or really is? Sure, yeah. Well, it was, uh, yeah, it was founded in the early 80s. William Casey was a fi key figure in its founding. He was the CIA director under Ronald Reagan, and basically, it was, to, it was to do overtly what the CIA had been doing covertly uh, in the 60s and 70s, and that is to fund propaganda uh, to largely, you know, to demonize governments that the U.S. Are, are considered enemies of the United States or geopolitical rivals like Russia and China, uh, and to fund um, dissidents within those societies and fund your know, opposition groups to the government and fund like media to promote like anti-Chinese communist party. You know, for instance, like it will fund intellectuals in China who are against the Chinese communist party and intellectual journals and exiles uh, who want to overthrow the Chinese government 
and it will sometimes will support minority groups who are persecuted, like in Russia or China or in South American countries. And like, yeah, in the 80s, it was funding like newspapers that were anti-Sandinista, like in Nicaragua and anti-Soviet, you know, exiles, uh, some of their writings. And like there are authors, like in the buildup to the Iraq war, they're funding uh, Iraqi exiles who were like, uh, you know, uh, against Saddam Hussein and broadcasting his human rights crimes because that was used to mobilize public opinion to support the U.S. Uh, overthrow of Saddam Hussein and, and, and military invasion. So, and it's used to support like color revolutions in like Eastern European country like Ukraine or Georgia. They'll fund networks of uh, sometimes youth who are agitating against the government and they want to ultimately cause something like the Maidan uh, uprising and coup of 2014 in, in Ukraine that was uh, driven in part by young people. And, you know, they will fund like social media so they can connect on social media. And some of the projects seem innocuous and in that they're, you know, they present it as a we're supporting human rights and democracy, but they're really an underlying goal of advancing U.S. power and targeting certain governments that defy U.S. interests. Um, they were openly involved in the Hong Kong protests. Yeah, openly. exactly. That would be an example. They're inciting and, and some of the insurrections end up being very violent insurrections against the government, like in Ukraine. And, you know, they're really carrying out terrorist activity, uh, often against legitimate governments uh, that are either legitimate in the eyes of their people or even democratically elected governments, like in the case of Ukraine in 2014, uh, was a legally elected government. Uh, so a, a lot of their activities yes, may right. be illegal. And the Chinese people I knew at the time that that was happening were just couldn't believe the stupidity of rocking the boat in Hong Kong, which had a better situation than they would have if China went in and changed stuff. Like, it's not like they were going to win independence. They were going to just get deeper and deeper into the fold to the point where I almost thought it was a false flag operation by the Chinese to try to justify completely absorbing Hong Kong before that was scheduled. But uh, once I saw the National Endowment of Democracy was involved, I realized that it was just a, you know, operation from the outside. Yeah. And they promote the writing like Gene Sharp, who had like a blueprint for overthrowing governments. Um, so, and some of the people they support, like in South America, they've supported some extreme factions uh, who use, uh, you know, violence uh, and carry out, uh, Terror, like like we were describing in Ukraine, there are elements in Latin America who have carried out those kind of activities as well uh, with the goal of regime change. There's a, a little passage here in your article, um, the sub, you know, it's in the section called Selling War with China. And it says, on September 6th, the War Industry Resistors Network supported a webinar on selling war with China that spotlighted the profiteering underlying the spread of anti-China propaganda. The first speaker was Carl Zha, who runs ZHA, who runs a podcast about China and the Silk Road. And I just wanted to, I thought this was really illuminating of um, just, like I like when, when you spell out what's really going on. So I just want to read it directly. Ja says that the U.S. ruling class is divided between business elites who still want to access the China market and the Pentagon, which fears China's economic rise and challenge to the U.S. and wants to contain and isolate China. So this, I mean, 
I'm such a conspiracy theorist that it's hard for me to even like really identify competing factions. But what I think is probably the truth is that there are competing factions who do have like overarching um, aligned interest in that they don't actually want, you know, they don't want, for example, the international financial system to collapse. Like I've actually read that that the reason Hitler was his rise was tolerated is that they didn't actually fear that he would do something on a financial, you know, really high level financial scale. But um, so I thought that was interesting. I'm open to that theory. And then it goes on to say the Biden administration has sided with the latter Pentagon in pursuing a policy of military encirclement while trying to weaken China's semiconductor industry. I've done numerous shows, 45 minute shows simply on like the Taiwan, like that these visits of Nancy Pelosi and other people went straight to Taiwan for some mysterious reason. And they all met with, for extended periods of time, the Taiwan Semiconductor Company, which had a very deep history, which I did expand. So I absolutely think targeting that in your article is absolutely right. China's semiconductor industry and to decouple America's economy from China's. And then the last thing I'll read, because it it, it actually delineates um, the specific things the Biden administration has done, in your words, to further antagonize China by A, sending warships into the South China Sea and spy planes over the Taiwan Straits, which is under Chinese jurisdiction, B, expanding the U.S. military base network in the Philippines, C, fortifying the U.S. military alliance with South Korea and Japan, D, helping to transform Okinawa into a garrison state for war with China, E, sending nuclear-armed submarines and precision weapons to Australia aimed at China. I've, re I've read all of these things in the papers, not, and it's not disputed. F, furthering military cooperation with India. G, turning Taiwan into a heavily armed quote, porcupine that hosts U.S. Special Forces and H, sending B-52 nuclear-armed bombers to Guam. These are all things that are, have actually happened. And, I mean, we're worried about war with Russia. I don't, this is a two-front war with Russia and China. Not, I'm not, I'm not fired up for that. Uh, yeah, and that's insanity. I mean, and, and what is the purpose? And, you know, like even the first dilemma you point out, I mean, even the business community was benefiting from the U.S. trade with China. And, yeah, I mean, there were some, you know, exploitative aspects with these sweatshops and the like. But, I mean, there are a lot of uh, opportunities. So why are you pursuing? And, you know, a lot of the business community uh, wanted to further a positive diplomatic relation so they can continue to make money with China and trade with China, which is a booming economy. And, you know, that presents a lot of opportunity. Unfortunately, I think the mentality of the ruling elite uh, sees that as a threat, you know, that China is growing economically, when actually there's opportunity for mutual benefit economically. But then you have these Pentagon interests that we've been discussing that just want war and that profit off war. And it's, it's, it's provoking this really insane strategy uh, that the U.S. is planning for war with China and, and they're already in a shadow war with Russia at the same time, and that's extremely dangerous. I mean, I mean, I guess it could be as simple as the defense industry wants that the, that the schism is between the defense industry and consumer industry, because I'm convinced, especially with regard to Russia, but maybe also China, I just haven't looked into it as much. I'm absolutely convinced that for 
self-serving reasons, Putin um, has wanted this entire time for decades to uh, enter, to have Russia enter into the Western commercial fold. And that he that's just what he wanted. He wanted to keep Russia Russian, but have its economy basically Europeanized in its style, but, you know, trading freely and crossing that border in both directions. But I feel like after the Berlin Wall fell or whatever, the West just viewed this as a big new market, flooded that with their consumer goods, had the tax money like distributed to people to buy the stuff. And I think once they got on their feet and could actually compete, China too, they they don't want to have to compete or it's that it's the defense industry alone that's that's driving this what seems to be dominant and dangerous direction. Yeah, and it's really a destructive policy. I mean, it's just going to lead to, you know, violence. And I mean, yeah, I mean, there's so many opportunities for uh, mutual benefit. And yeah, Putin, as you say, was a really more pro-Western oriented leader. I mean, he was Boris Yeltsin's successor, he was not a Marxist. And the Chinese, you know, had shifted their economy under, under Deng Xiaoping and were more also, I mean, yes, it is a mixed market economy and a strong public uh, you know, a controlled aspect of their economy, but they had liberalized under Deng Xiaoping, and there's huge you know, opportunities for American investors and business in China. And that was the long-held dream you know, to access the China market, and they reached that dream. So why abandon the policy that Nixon had crafted? Uh, it, it, it really... It shows how the what what Eisenhower warned about with the military industrial complex, yes, that leads to destruction of, of uh, democracy and a complete warping of public policy in a very very destructive way that's um, not beneficial to anybody except this narrow cliques that that make huge profits and their profits, I guess, are so obscene that. Uh, they can't resist, and they keep going forward, even to the point of threatening a self-destructive uh, war. Yes, and I and I do feel like the um, oh, uh, Eisenhower originally called it the military-industrial congressional complex, which kind of explains it all. That that's how what will be the policy comes from there, uh, and yeah. So I I think. You know, I try to figure out what the big picture is and if it's as simple as defense industry wanting to profiteer, you know, at the expense of everything. I don't even, I'm not even, maybe I should be, but I'm not super worried about violence here, but our standard of living is definitely going to suffer. It's already suffered at this, these weird COVID policies and supply chain interruptions, I feel, were absolutely some kind of paradigm shift to move us away from that. Uh, integrated Chinese relationship. One thing that I want to keep my eye on, and if you ever hear anything about this, maybe I'll do a deep dive on it. I believe that the U.S. Navy basically patrols, patrols the entire Pacific Ocean. And if we didn't, our trade with China would be impossible without massive, you know, China would have to just pay for that themselves, which they may or may not do, and it would not be cost-effective. I'm kind of just waiting for that to go backwards. I'll have to look into that. If anybody knows anything about it, let me know. Uh, so, all right. Well, I 
Um, I think I, 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 I stepped over my boundaries by asking you about every single article you read wrote in the past couple of weeks, but they were also interesting. And I just encourage people, I'll put them in the show notes to read those. And I really look forward to the Clinton book. And yeah, what else you got? Well, I, I don't know. Yeah, it's up to you. We've had a lot of good, uh, good Oh, yeah, we hit it all. So let's just direct people to your articles. Actually, I'll put them all in the show notes on monicasdeepdives.com, but uh, you can go to covertactionmagazine.com. And if you like the first article that pops up today, I think is yours, Jeremy, click on Jeremy's name and you'll just, all his articles will cascade down in front of you and they're all worth reading. I just love the data dump I get when I talk to you, Jeremy. So next time, I hope, because I expected, you know, books getting published always push off a little bit. So it's pushed back. It was, it was supposed to be October, but I'm hoping that the next time we talk, we can talk in depth about your um, new Clinton book. What's it called? Uh, it's called Warmonger, uh, How Clinton Shaped the U.S. Foreign Policy, foreign policy Trajectory from Bush to Biden. And yeah, it, it's, it shows how a lot of these disastrous policy, like we've been describing, even China, because I think Clinton started to set in motion a more confrontational policy uh, than had been in place from Nixon. And he started the ball rolling to what could be ultimately very devastating, you know, ultimately for the U.S. economy, as you were alluding at the end, and also just dangerous for world peace and security when you have major powers threatening each other uh, it could lead to proxy wars or, or a full-fledged world war. And I think, you know, Clinton started on that path with China as well as Russia by uh, antagonizing Russia, by expanding NATO, and also by imposing this uh, shock therapy system that uh, devastated Russia's economy on its transition from a yes. communist system to a free market system. It was not done. You know, China was much smarter. They transitioned under Deng Xiaoping, you know, more on their own terms and in a gradual way. But in Russia, they just pushed this uh, a massive sell-off of Russian state industry and a corrupt process with all kinds of cronyism, and it led to an economic catastrophe. And so Clinton's Russia policy was a disaster, yeah. I'm super eager uh, to read about that if you go into that in the book. I've always wondered about that. I do, yeah. I have chapters on Russia on China and Southeast Asia, on the Balkan wow. conflict, on, on Rwanda, because that was another case where yes. they destroyed the conflict uh, to make like their, you know, needed humanitarian intervention. But, you know, they, they were really supporting the fat, the side that, that did most of the killing and that invaded Congo. Like Clinton was supporting Rwanda's invasion of Congo that killed millions of people and devastated Congo's economy. And they were trying to access the mineral wealth of the Congo. So there were a lot of corrupt uh, things that Clinton did. And, you know, the, uh, I mean, I think the reputation is low in some circles, but there are still uh, places, you know, if you go in a lot of parts of the country, there's still veneration for the Clintons and respect for them when mm -hmm. they've done all these terrible things. Uh, going back to the time Bill was a governor of Arkansas. And yeah, it goes back to his early career. He was in, in league with the CIA from the time he was in college, and they were a deeply immoral power couple. And this book yes. uh, sheds light on that and, and sheds light on the deeper corruption in American politics 
uh, that we need more pushback against. Yeah, well, I'm super eager to read that and to talk to you about it, share it with the audience. Thank you, as always, Jeremy, for coming and spending your time with us. I know you're a busy guy. Uh, Thank you all for listening. This is Monica Perez, and you have been listening to Deep Dive. 